Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you could take the two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that the podcast will never, ever have annoying ads for you to skip through. But getting back to the show, today's episode is a little different than usual in that we're going to dive deep into a particular aspect of building a business, specifically how exactly one should approach scaling an engineering organization, where in today's technology-driven economy, it's critical to not only hire technical talent, but build a technical organization that supports maximum efficiency throughout the developer lifecycle, from actually shipping and testing code, all the way to interacting with your sales or product organization. And there are very few companies out there that do this better than Asana. Now, that's partially because Asana has the unfair advantage of using their own product, which, if you're unfamiliar, is the leading team and project management software solution on the market, so that is why I am very excited to announce Prashant Pandey, Asana's VP Engineering, as today's podcast guest. Prashant first joined Asana as an early employee and has helped scale the organization as it's reached over $100 million in ARR and has raised from top investors like Benchmark and Andreessen Horowitz. So in today's podcast, Prashant and I start with a high-level overview of the key principles one should focus on in building an engineering organization prior to diving into the nitty-gritty around each aspect of the development lifecycle. Additionally, Prashant and I talk about his perspective on the burgeoning trend of DevOps and how he manages resource allocation and inter-organizational planning. So why don't we get started? Hey, Prashant, how's it going? Good, how are you, John? Doing great. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah. So why don't we get started with a little bit on your background? and how you came to join Asana. So I've had a pretty unplanned career. This isn't a story of me wanting to get to leading an org of this size and uh, taking steps to get there, more following my interests of different points of time and, and getting to this place. So I started off being very interested in theoretical computer science as an undergrad and wanting to pursue a PhD, got to grad school, switched over to distributed computing instead of theoretical computer science. That led to some interesting opportunities in academia and research institutes. So I ended up at IBM Research. Uh, Did very kind of low-level work in the stack on I.O. systems and uh, databases, file systems, stuff of that sort. And after doing that for six, seven years, I realized that I actually want my code to ship. And I want to see the impact on the world of the stuff that I'm building. So went from low levels of the stack to pretty much building application software in a tiny startup, which was doing mobile advertising when the iPhone had just come out. There wasn't the idea, much idea of advertising and very much not of video advertising on mobile devices. So we did a bunch of very innovative work in that space. So I did that for some time, got into more leadership and leading teams versus just building my stuff and doing research in that transition. And that felt like the right thing to me. It felt like the right way to scale my impact by being responsible for a whole team's 
work rather than just my own. And after that, actually went back to being low-level, joining the DynamoDB team. So the AWS team was opening an office in Palo Alto looking for a leader to start that. So that seemed very unique, and so I joined that team and spent some time building DynamoDB, which was an incredible experience just in terms of scale and usage and also the technology. It was probably the most hardcore thing I've, I've built. When I look at kind of arc of my career as a leader, a lot of it was basically aligning my team on the right stuff, making sure collaboration was happening in the right way. We were communicating with other groups in the right way. And so when I got an email from Dustin Moskowitz saying, do you want to chat about this company we're building? I thought it was a good idea to at least have that conversation. And it literally blew my mind to talk to somebody who was essentially building exactly what I had been doing through software, right? The problem of aligning teams, getting people to collaborate, I was solving that one team at a time. And as a software engineer, I felt shame that I hadn't thought of solving this through software. So the mission appealed to me, and I've been here since then. And I think we're really making an impact on that idea of helping teams collaborate a lot better. So for those in the audience who aren't lucky enough to get to use Asana, could you break down what exactly the product is and the pain points that it helps solve? Sure. So I'll start with the pain points. So if you've ever been on a team where you felt like we've got the right people, we are solving the right problem, but we seem to be spending all our time figuring out who is doing what, writing about what am I doing, what should I be doing, somebody telling me that, oh, the thing you're doing, somebody else is doing that as well, things falling through the cracks. If you are on that kind of team, you're not alone. That seems to be the common story of larger teams. And uh, McKinsey did a study that more than half of the time that people spend is spent on coordination of work, not on the work itself. So we call that work about work, and we think that software, specifically work management software, can solve this problem, make it a lot better. So what Asana does, at one level, you can think about it as the place you go to to figure out who is doing what by when. What Asana helps people do is create what we like to call the pyramid of clarity. So at the top of the pyramid is the purpose of the team, right? What is it that you're trying to achieve together? And at the bottom of the pyramid is the individual tasks that people are doing day to day. And what teams need is that clarity of how is the work that I'm doing at the bottom of the pyramid connected up to the mission and the purpose of that team. And so Asana is providing the software that levels you up in this pyramid of clarity and builds up all the layers which let you connect your work to the purpose. And along the way, because you can look at everything or whatever your organization allows you to look at, it's easy to see who else is working on the project that you're working on, what their goals are, what work is scheduled at what time. You can look at things on a timeline view. There's a lot of kind of specific things that the product does to enable collaboration, but that's the kind of high-level view of what we are trying to solve for. 
And as I think about the broader collaboration and project management space, there have been quite a few really well-funded companies that have tried to crack the market. So why do you think Asana is the best company for the job? Yeah, so my view of it, and, and of course, I tried to use software to do agile management, stuff of that sort for my teams before I came to Asana. So it, it isn't, that software doesn't exist. I think the key problem when you're trying to collaborate using software is that everyone needs to use that software. That's the key. Whatever your process and your methodology is, everybody needs to participate because eventually you're delivering as a team. So to me, that's the key thing about Asana is that every individual finds value. You don't need a project manager who's going desk to desk to figure out what people are doing and then putting it into the tool. Rather, the team goes to Asana to figure out what the work is. And it is just natural at that point to say, okay, this is assigned to me. So it's magically different. When you have a team of 12 people and everyone has the right thing assigned to them, where they have done that themselves, versus you are kind of treating your software as a lagging indicator where things are being put on, this happened last week, the value of that is exponentially different, if that makes sense. Got it. That's super helpful context before we shift into more of your day-to-day, as I'm very excited specifically to hear from you on how one should go about building a thriving engineering organization. Sure. So to set context, could you share more about what your role as VP engineering actually entails? Yeah. So I lead the engineering organization at Asana. The goal of the engineering organization is to build the Asana product on all platforms at high quality bar that we have as fast as possible. And what my role is basically is responsible for this team, the engineering team achieving that mission. The size of the team at this point is uh, around 150 people growing really quickly for the rest of the year and for the foreseeable future. And day to day, it's various aspects of that job, which is making sure we are building the right thing. So participating in representing engineering in company level discussions on strategy, what we're building, why, who are our customers, what are we targeting as a company? bringing in the engineering perspective to that discussion and taking that context from the company to engineering. So I serve as that liaison and that link and various parts of my job are essentially that coaching individual leaders through that context, participating in discussions on technology and processes for teams and what they are building and participating at the company level discussions. Yeah. Great. And how exactly have you structured the Asana Engineering organization? Yeah, so Asana Engineering is made up of three big parts. There's product engineering, which is responsible for building all the products on all the platforms, mobile, web, integrations, APIs, stuff of that sort. There's the infrastructure team, which builds all the backend services that support these products and the data team, which includes data science and engineering, that builds the experimentation systems, the data collection systems, and provides the insights that allow high-quality decision-making across product and business. And one of the trends that we've seen really take the IT world has been DevOps, which is short for developer operations and is really about the practice of shortening the development lifecycle. Yeah. 
And I think for a lot of non-IT folks, the idea of DevOps is a bit strange because from an abstracted perspective, the idea of a software engineer is just that they write some code and then click a button and it's shipped to the proverbial cloud. But in reality, in an enterprise, you've got a whole software lifecycle, right? From project design to development to testing Mm -hmm. and then iterating again and again. So in terms of how I explain DevOps, I generally use a metaphor of, let's say, farming, where back in the day, hunter-gatherers would literally use their hands to dig stuff up and then plant stuff every now and then. And that's kind of like what software developers were doing 20 years ago, literally shipping code manually on their hands and knees. And then over time in agriculture, some smart people came along and invented picks and shovels, which ultimately evolved into tractors and other heavy machinery which all serve the purpose of optimizing the operations of farming. So DevOps, to me, essentially, is that same process and that same building of tools that are used to optimize and accelerate the speed of software development in the same way that a tractor or some heavy machinery did for agriculture. Yeah. So all of that is a long-winded way of asking you, because I'm curious, what is your definition of DevOps and how do you instill DevOps in your organization? Yeah, it's a good question. I've read and heard about a lot of definitions and people having very deeply held beliefs about what the definition should be. And so I I actually stay away from trying to define what DevOps is. The question that I'm interested in asking and answering is, what's the right way of building high-quality SaaS software? So essentially, the difference from 20 years ago is the rise of SaaS where organizations are responsible not just for building software, but for operating it, right? And so to me, a lot of the lessons from organizations historically is having these walls between people who are building and people who are operating. And that's just not the thing that we've done as a startup growing up. We had a small number of engineers They were building the software, they were responsible for figuring out where it was running, how it was being deployed, how it was being maintained. So the problems of deployment and maintainability were all on the software engineers. So you basically had a very tight loop between what, how you need to build the software so that all that other stuff is easy to do. It was not somebody else's job that you could throw bodies at yeah, there's a lot of alerting going on and software engineers don't care. They will keep introducing more alerts and somebody else will figure out how to deal with them, either by hiring a lot of people or by automating some stuff around it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So essentially, everything around the software lifecycle, and now the software lifecycle includes operating the software and dealing with traffic and all of that stuff, is the responsibility of one single team. And to the extent that DevOps means that, we're doing DevOps. But really what we're doing is building and maintaining software. So I think it's worth also painting a picture for the audience here around the rationale for DevOps, Mm -hmm. where DevOps is this concept that to some degree is built on top of the Agile framework, with the Agile framework more or less being a manifesto that revolutionized the software development lifecycle 
where previously the paradigm had operated under what people called the waterfall model, where projects would move one bucket at a time. And it was a really rigid framework where you would set the project scope up front and then need to finish all of the work for a product within a single project. And ultimately, you'd have these projects that would take six months or years to finish. And by the time you were done engineering that product, your product and scope were already irrelevant because of some new technology or because your customers didn't want that product anymore. Yeah. So Agile comes along and is this new operational framework that attempts to shift the engineering process into shorter cycles. And that ties really well with the lean startup methodology where you're now iterating in really quick sprints, let's say months long instead of years long. And the benefit there is that you're now innovating faster as you stay more closely attuned to your customer. So you're accelerating your time to market and you're also making it a lot easier to deal with a smaller amount of bugs mm -hmm. and collaborate across the organization. Yeah. So with product, with sales, with operations. So with all of that context being set, what are some case studies of how DevOps has improved the process at Asana? Yeah, so as I said before, we didn't introduce DevOps. There wasn't a kind of campaign to introduce DevOps because that's just the DNA of the company. That's how we started with a group of two engineers building software and being responsible for deploying it and stuff. So most of the engineering org is focused on building the features, building the customer visible aspects of the product because that's what we are responsible for, right? So some of the things that happen is as you have 100 engineers writing new code, the amount of time it takes for tests to run, the amount of time it takes just to bundle the software as it gets larger and larger and ship it to servers becomes larger. So you had an iteration time of minutes maybe, and then you suddenly are looking at an hour to two hour deployment time. That might not sound horrible. When you're shipping code maybe twice a day, it doesn't sound horrible if it maybe takes an hour, but imagine if you have an outage, you shipped a bug, it is causing things to crash, and now to ship the fix, it's gonna take you two hours, right? That is a real problem. So you want these deployment times to be super short. So a lot of these things happen bottoms up and organically at Asana where engineers notice this problem, they make a case for, we need to invest in this, and then as part of our quarterly decision-making around what are we funding, we decide, okay, we are going to fund this. So we built a couple of systems, a release management system and a release activation system that made it far easier to, in a very fine-grained way, say, what are we shipping? What, are we turn what features are we turning on and off? So it has improved a few different things. One of them, it has improved the time from finishing writing a piece of code and for seeing the results of it in production, that has shortened a lot. And it means that if there is an outage going on and we need to ship a fix, the time to fixing a problem has gone down a lot as well. And as I think about being the head of an engineering organization within a broader company, there's always this tension between product and engineering and sales and ops. So how do you foster collaboration between Asana's engineering organization and the rest of the company? Yeah, so many pieces uh, fit together to, for this to run smoothly and for us to not run into misalignment across the company. And in some ways, this is the problem we are trying to solve for all teams. 
So we take a lot of pride in doing it well at Asana. So to start with, we build our internal pyramid of clarity, right? So we have the mission, which is to help all teams collaborate effortlessly. And we have everybody doing individual tasks and all that is tied up in a way that anyone in Asana knows how their work is tied to the mission. And at the next level beyond mission is the objectives that we create at an annual cadence. We come up with these are the objectives. And right at that level, those objectives are cross-functional. There are no engineering objectives and sales objectives. There is a single objective around adoption. So, for example, an engineer who's working on improving how a new team adopts Asana is very aligned with a salesperson or a customer success person who's trying to help a team adopt Asana. So there's just, because their goals are exactly the same goal. So that's one way in which we solve the collaboration problem, which is we create a high degree of alignment and communicate it. Another thing that really helps at Asana is using Asana the tool. So anybody across the organization can go into the sprint project of any team. They're already familiar with the team, so they don't feel like they're on, in a foreign tool trying to understand the process of a completely different part of the org. It just looks like the work stream project of any other team. And they're able to look at, okay, well, how is this team prioritizing the things that I asked for versus other things? So it's much easier to see things in context and not feel like, I have a valid request. Why is it not being prioritized? You actually see why it's not being prioritized or where it is being prioritized, if that makes sense. So yeah, teams are highly cross-functional to start with, where there is uh, product and user research and data science and engineering are all working together as a single team. And then a lot of the work that is coming to them is coming through processes which are highly aligned. And the business works hard on creating something called the voice of business. So we bring together input from sales, marketing, customer success, user operations, and instead of each team saying, this is our top priority, we actually create a prioritized list across teams of saying what customers want from Asana. So if you are coming in and saying, hey, this thing that is 15th on the list is really important, the conversation we have first is, okay, why is it 15th on the list if it is the most important thing we should be doing? So there's that level of conversation which is useful to have. And then what can we be doing about improving whatever you're asking for? Got it. And as you look within your own engineering organization, right, being one of the first few employees at Asana and now scaling to over 500 or so, yeah. uh, within your engineering organization that you manage, have there been any lessons learned of scaling during hypergrowth specifically around hiring? Good question. I think in general, dealing with growth, it's important to anticipate and be solving problems before they happen and setting a culture that can assimilate people. In terms of hiring, the, the important thing to realize is we're not hiring to grow the team. Mm-hmm. We are hiring to solve problems faster. So that's the lens to bring to hiring when you're growing a team is how will this candidate that we're trying to hire make our team better, more productive, ship faster, bring a unique strength that will grow the team in some way. So if you bring that lens to hiring, you'll succeed at 
being more effective with a larger team size because in in my view there's multiple failure cases with fast growth one of them is you're trying to grow fast and you don't grow fast which is classic and we've been in that state many periods of time and the other is you do grow fast but you look a year later and you're not producing any more than you were with a much smaller team and then it's like why did we do all that work so bring that lens so, so for asana that means a couple of things one is when we are hiring we look for this is a high caliber team anyone who comes in if they're not able to talk at the same level in terms of being able to quickly understand what is the technical problem we are trying to solve what are the three solutions that kind of table stakes come to mind when you think of that kind of problem what is something creative we can do quickly make a decision and move on you need a high level of technical aptitude for that and then you also need a high level of software engineering skills so that other people can build on top of what you build so those are just technical skills that we really look for and the other side is collaboration how do you work together with people are you focused on what you will build or are you focused on what the team has built and again or, or what the team will build and again being the company that we are being the culture that we are we're very focused on what does the team build and so we look for that while we're hiring which allows us to hire people who contribute to the team i really like that latter perspective around collaboration because i think oftentimes there's this myth of the 100x coder who you just send off and they run with themselves and they do the whole thing themselves and it's very much an i thing as opposed to a team thing right but as i think about the broader talent market here in silicon valley it's hyper competitive for quality engineers so why do you think engineers are best fit to work at asana as opposed to a google or a facebook in terms of being in a hyper competitive environment i think you as an engineering leader as an organization have to tell your story of what is it that you're building that should be exciting to people so the primary reason that people should consider asana is if they're excited about this idea of helping all teams work together more effectively in terms of what's blocking progress i think if we make all teams 5% more efficient we'll really make a dent in the world so if that is exciting to you if being in a relatively small company compared to the the facebooks and googles where we are still building the foundational aspects of the systems that we are building uh, we just after team to build automation around so if you imagine a system like asana which is helping teams collaborate there isn't a lot of things that happen automatically within the system manual action is needed for pretty much everything and that's something that we are starting to change and build in for example if you have a form that somebody fills in if that form is in a project that gets automatically assigned to someone we're building those kind of things for the first time so if you join now you're building things that 5 years from now are going to be yeah that's that's just a core part of asana and i built that so we're still a small team exciting to join for that reason and uh, finally you work with a fantastic set of people who we've all brought together where every single one we've thought about how do they collaborate with others and how do they work in a team environment and at asana are there any favorite projects that come to mind that emphasize that spirit of collaboration yeah sure there've been lots of super challenging projects that we've done over time one of them is just hiring people and growing the team 
which is fundamentally a collaborative exercise because you are every interviewer, every recruiter, every engineering manager has to work together to succeed at hiring one single engineer, <laughs> right? You have, you have to be aligned on what is it that you're pitching? What is the value that you will bring to this person? What is the value that this person will bring to the company? And then you have to align on evaluation and that they are a fit for the team and then on selling them to bring them to the company. And you can be doing all of these things and you can be failing at recruiting, which is the story of most companies in the Valley, because as you said, everybody's trying hard and most people are not succeeding at meeting the goals that they have. So that is one of the big lifts that we've had. And we're succeeding right now, but it's not something that I take for granted. It's something that we have to keep working on to keep succeeding. And I'm happy to dig in more into that. But another one that comes to mind is improving the performance of Asana. So Asana was built a while back before a lot of frameworks like React and Backbone existed. So we rolled our own that when the company started, there just wasn't that framework and tooling available to build a rich collaborative application. So we basically built all of that ourselves. And over time, the performance of the product was just not up to snuff. When you're working on something where you're asking people to collaborate with each other and you're solving the problem of work about work, if it is a large amount of work to actually enter stuff into the tool, then you're not building a successful product. And by 2015, we had kind of exhausted all the small tweaks and low-lying fruit. We've picked all of that to improve performance. So it had come time to actually do a major lift and do an architectural overhaul. And part of that was getting the company aligned on the fact that, okay, we are going to pour a lot of our technical bandwidth into solving this performance problem and it's going to take a long time before it actually improves the performance problem. A lot of the time is going to be spent doing things that are invisible from the customer's perspective. Customers are going to get zero benefit from it for a period of more than a year. So it had become a large enough problem where the company was aligned on that. We did work towards that. And most re-architecture projects fail. Right. So this is, to me, that's another thing that makes me more proud of the success we had was the fact that most things in this arena fail and we, we were able to actually go from poor performing framework to something that works really, really well. And there's lots of tricks left that we have not exploited yet that we can use to make things faster. And another thing that worked really well was we kept part of our technical bandwidth on forward-looking progress. So we kept adding features while we were doing this major architecture. We didn't say stop the world, spend a year rewriting everything, and then start building features. We kept doing both. And that, I think, helped make the project successful because from a customer standpoint, the product wasn't standing still. And the last part of which, which has taken a bunch of collaboration and we've been successful at is pursuing it to the end. When you're doing a re-architecture, you can leave yourself in a state where half of your application is on one architecture, half of it, which is less used, in the, is on the old architecture, and you never go back to kind of clean everything up so that you can build from a common foundation. And we've, we've been able to do that. And that's taken a lot of education and effort, but in my view, that's worth it. And that's part of being one company is 
to not just mandate that we engineer are going to do this, but explain to the rest of the company why we'll do it. And when you're balancing all these different projects, how do you think about resource allocation, right? How do you think about how much you dedicate to the re-architecture versus continuing to deploy new features? Yeah, it's a hard problem, essentially. The reason it's a hard problem is that the way you can quantify the impact is in different currencies, and the exchange rate isn't defined. That makes sense. apples and oranges every time. Yeah. So there's different ways we've gone about it. For example, this idea of we have the most performance-critical parts of the application have been rewritten, but the other parts haven't been rewritten. How will we figure out when to rewrite them? The rule I had was we'll keep one team staffed that's working towards it so that we're always kind of chipping away at it. Because once you de-staff it completely, it's very difficult to say when is the right time to actually staff it. So this is where discipline comes in. You say that, okay, I'm going to keep one team staffed. I'm not making an argument for spending half of our engineering bandwidth on this, but let's make forward progress. And then as we come closer to being able to rip off the Band-Aid, we can actually go say, hey, here are the benefits of doing the rest of it, and can we get more people to go work on this? The other thing, in terms of staffing and prioritizing engineering-driven projects, really helps to have technical co-founders who just understand that value of investing in the engineering iteration time. And then it falls on engineering leaders to make that pitch and explain and to be able to differentiate between when is it a nice to have and when will it make a real business impact to improve iteration times. And it just keeps going up with a larger team. Making the time from writing code to getting to production is really valuable whether you have five engineers or 50 engineers, but it is more valuable once you have 50 engineers because it is affecting that many more people, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. At scale, it creates even more efficiency. Yeah. And as you think about all of the features that your team has built, right? I mean, there's a multitude of features on Asana that are awesome. What is your favorite one and why? Yeah. So when I told you the story of joining Asana and how it was literally mind-blowing for me to have that conversation with Dustin, and one of the questions I asked him was, I understand the pitch. I understand what you're trying to do. Can you tell me today why is Asana better than the way I'm doing stuff with my team? And... Very simple idea. On every task in Asana, you have a bunch of followers. And at any point, you can add a follower if they need to understand the context of the work. And when they add it as a follower, it's very different from forwarding an email. If you've ever got added to a thread 15 deep, it's very hard to kind of parse through and understand what was being talked about. Whereas at Asana, it's very structured, so you see everything, and you can dig into as much history as you want. So adding followers, so that, that felt okay, that's fine. The magic thing is you can remove followers, which is impossible once you're added onto an email thread, right? You can actually say, okay, I came into this thread, I contributed what I had to, I'm not needed here anymore, I'm going to unfollow it. What yeah, that means is... Me. Unsubscribe me, please. Please take me off the CC line, right? (laughs) And you can take that action yourself and you will not get notified when people comment on that thread going forward. Super basic, but magical in terms of how it frees you from the tyranny of of email and uh, large threads. And again, as we talked about, at small scale, it's great. But when you're talking about 
a 500-person company or a 5,000-person company, this is really, really important. And this has been part of Asana from the very beginning. So I'm kind of talking about the most core aspect of the task list of Asana, which is like the foundation, and we've built so many things yeah. since then. That's wonderful. And then shifting to the last part of the podcast here, centered on the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition. Sure. What are some consistent patterns or themes you see across successful engineering organizations? In my view, one of the important ones is distributing responsibility. Who has decision rights? And especially as you scale the organization, keep those decision rights closest to the people who are actually doing the work where the decision and the impact of it has the smallest feedback loop, trying to keep decisions there. That's just a pattern to follow. You can call it empowerment, but really it's a business imperative to make fast decisions. So pushing down responsibility or pushing out responsibility is a thing you need to figure out how to do well. And there's very different models for it. I think Amazon is absolutely brilliant at this with their service model. Two pizza team and everything like that, yeah. Yeah, and, and for example, with DynamoDB, I felt complete ownership of it, right? I was like, I didn't feel like I have to make a decision and I have to tell my manager who'll tell their manager who'll tell Jeff Bezos and then we'll that mandate will come down to us and then we'll implement something. I could make a change. I could say, this is the customer problem. This is how we're going to solve it. And we just go. So there was, you felt like you were building DynamoDB. You understood you were part of Amazon, but the core affiliation of the team was with the service you were building. At Asana, we are building one product. So even though we have smaller teams with very clear missions, we are still kind of lining up to that single product. But the way we do it is through areas of responsibility and defining clear DRIs for decisions and making sure they're as close to the team as makes sense for, for particular areas or for particular decisions. That's one thing. The other is, again, I've said it a few times already, but creating that pyramid of clarity. Use whatever tool makes sense for your team, but create that alignment around what is the purpose of the larger context in which we are operating? What is the mission of this team? How is the work related to that? That's something that is worth over-communicating. If you feel you're communicating it, do a little more and make sure people really understand it. And if people at some point push back and say, you're over-communicating it, maybe you should stop, but don't stop before that. And are there any mental models or patterns that you apply in your own decision-making? Sure. So a lot of my role is making decisions. And one of the things that I think about is what is the audience for this decision? And you can actually break down the audience. It's not just a question of what is the right thing to do here. It's a question of, okay, I'll make this decision. Here is the impact in terms of this is one part of the audience which will look at this decision and make some assumptions about why, what the values are behind that decision. Here's another part of the audience. So I definitely try to, for big, important decisions, I definitely try to break that down into who, what are all the audiences of the decision and make sure that I'm not just thinking about what is the right decision to make, but how, how to message it so that people understand the values behind it, the inputs that went into it, and what it is and when are we going to revisit things if if uh, things don't go well that's great and then last question is what is a book you've recently read and how has it changed your perspective 
been reading a lot of fiction recently. <laughs> That's great. I used to struggle a lot with feeling inefficient with my time with fiction until I reframed. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And uh, I think I, I read a novel's thoughts around if you kind of stop reading a lot, then read whatever it takes to get into that reading habit, and then you can read other things. But actually, one book I I'll, uh, want to talk about is The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. It's a book that everyone at Asana reads. In some ways, it's not a single-player book. The value that comes from it is when the whole team reads it, and it helps you have the same language around conflict resolution and talking about emotional states that people are in. I don't feel that is the one book that every team should apply, but you should have either nonviolent communication, which is another great book, but you should have some common patterns of identifying conflict, talking about conflict. And then another book that I've read a long time ago, but I definitely recommend to people in the technology industry is uh, High Output Management by Andy Grove. And a lot of concepts that are just like gospel at this point, you can kind of trace back to Andy and the Intel team applying that at scale at Intel and, and showing that it really made a difference. And uh, so some of the things are dated, but uh, really you can trace back a lot of Silicon Valley culture and what is thought of as en enlightened leadership back to high output management. Yeah, I mean, it's totally gospel, right? And the way Andy frames work as a process that's measurable is a really worthwhile way to think about business output, whether or not you're shipping t-shirts or you're shipping code as part of an engineering org. But Prashant, that is all the time we've got for today. And I appreciate you joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Prashant for joining us today. If you're not providing your team with the superpower of Asana for project management, then I highly encourage you to check out the product if you like saving time and money. In the meantime, I have tweeted out our upcoming guest list on Twitter, which includes Sophia Amoruso from Nasty Gal and Girlboss, as well as Leah Busk from TaskRabbit. So I'd absolutely love if you could send in your questions, and I will look forward to giving you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.